Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? Who are those guys? I'm Galen. And I'm Doug. And we're those movie guys. Bringing movie reviews and previews to the masses since 2007. Today is Monday, June 18th, 2007. Today on the show we have a theatrical review of Ocean's 13. Then we have a review of a DVD release, 10 Items or Less, starring Morgan Freeman. And finally, in honor of AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies 10th Anniversary, Doug and I will be counting down our top 10 favorite films of the American cinema. So let us get started with the film release of Ocean's 13. Well, Danny Ocean's boys are at it again. This time, they set out to get revenge against casino owner Willie Bank, played by Al Pacino. Once again, the film relies on a slick, sexy style, the intricacies of a clever robbery plot, and an unbelievably strong ensemble cast. Now, I think it's fair to say both of us enjoyed the first Ocean's movie, and that Ocean's 12 was a disappointment. So the question is, has the Ocean's gang returned to the fun heist caper of the original? Or is it another ensemble mess? Well, unfortunately, I have to say it hasn't returned to the fun of the original. I I felt... Well, I'm going to get what I liked about it out of the way. Because okay. I like to do that. I thought that it does have a fantastic style. And, I agree. And the set of composition about it. I loved the sets. I loved everyone's costumes. I mean, everyone's dressed in, you know, thousand dollars Designer suits, yes. Yeah, it's just... Amazing to look at the places they live. I love the design of the hotel. Oh, it's awesome. I, yes. You know, and, and the shot composition and the different framing of the shots whenever they would almost take the comic book view of yeah. shooting, like, the Hulk. Mm -hmm. I thought it really worked in this film, whereas in the Hulk it really didn't. Well, there was a lot of things wrong with the Hulk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I also thought that it was... Very entertaining in parts. I, I thought that it had a nice sense of charm, which is something that the first Oceans movie definitely had I agree. as well. And I felt that the conclusion was very entertaining. I agree. However, that's where what I thought was right with the film ends and where the problems start. I thought that the plot was just ridiculously intricate. And I had no clue what the hell they were trying to do you at know, any point in the film. It, it's funny, because for me, it, it was more intricate than it needed to be. The plot really isn't that intricate. It's just a revenge tale. Well, but, right, right. But they make it so complicated. Whenever I said plot, I meant the plot, the heist plot, not the plot of the film. Right. It, it's... <laughs> I think the way they jump around is what makes it a little confusing and complicated. Yeah. I think one thing for me that kind of contributed to the confusion, this would be a negative point for me, there were too many characters. I yeah. mean, you have a strong cast, but you had so many people involved in this heist that you couldn't keep up with what everybody was doing at one time. And you even had some characters that I couldn't remember. You know, they're, they're being brought in. I'm like, 
Now, who are yeah. they? What's their part in it again? And... Well, that's another problem I felt. There were too many in-jokes. I mean, that I, I, or at least I felt that way, because I only saw Ocean's Eleven once, and I never saw Ocean's Twelve. So it kind of left me wondering what the hell I was missing. I just kept getting that feeling that I was missing out on something. You aren't missing out by skipping Ocean's <laughs> Twelve, but I don't know about that many in-jokes, maybe a couple with some of the characters, but... Yeah, and if there aren't, then that just means that the writing was so poor it yeah, made the, you think that you were missing out on things. Well, it's funny you mentioned the writing, because while I'd say that possibly could be poor writing, mm-hmm. I have to admit I enjoyed this more than like some of these past hype, uh, heist or caper movies like uh, Lucky Number Slevin oh, and God. Smoke and Aces. I didn't think they over-stylized this that, to the point that you couldn't understand it like in those films. Yeah. This was much, much better. Yeah, and, and Lucky Number Slevin, I could never follow what they were talking about. Talk about yeah. having like, yeah. those end type of jokes that you just don't feel a part of. Well, those movies are unwatchable. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not going to that length with Ocean's <laughs> 13. Well, you know, a- another issue that I had is that I thought that the the heist plot that they came up with, to the degree that I did understand it, was so ridiculously expensive that they have to be, even after getting the money and the diamonds, they have to be bankrupt. I mean, because they actually buy the drills that drilled the channel. Yeah. I mean, give me a break. Yeah, some of it was a little far-fetched. I didn't really have a problem and with it. Making earthquakes, and, I mean, just blow up his hotel if you're going to go to all that effort. Well, some of it got a little ridiculous, but I don't think it hurt the film. I really liked it, actually. Mm-hmm. I thought, like you said, the cinematography and everything were, was oh, it is. beautiful. I thought it got off to a slow start. There was a, a good bit of kind of exposition. And they kind of labored on stuff that I didn't feel was quite important. I mean, you're right. They just took so much time kind of explaining how they got all these connections and stuff. I would have liked to liked them to have spent more time maybe developing Al Pacino's character. Yeah. I mean, I think he had a good setup to be kind of a, a cool hate to use villain in this type of a film, but I guess that's what I'll say. But, you know, it's just kind of like, oh, well, here's Ruben, and here's him screwing Ruben over, and here's Ruben suffering a heart attack, and now let's get revenge. Yeah. And the movie begins. Yeah, and that's really all it needed. Because it's, like you said, the the plot, as in the story, isn't that complicated. Right, but I, I would have rather, I think, the character development than the needless, Yeah, this is how we got X amount of dollars to buy these drills, <laughs> yeah. and this is how, you know, dice are composed of a composite resin that we can put this magnetic well, yeah, shit in and that was turn another, them over on lighters and stuff. That was another part of the plot that was completely far-fetched, how they... How they rigged the dice. I did not believe that for one second. I mean, that was just insane to go through that effort. Well, not only that, I think more so, you'd kind of notice if after the dice stopped rolling, you hear a click of the lighter, and then all of a sudden they take one more little Yeah. Clip. I think you might say physics wouldn't allow that. Yeah. But, uh... 
And for as tight as the security in this place is to let something like that be, you know, oblivious to the pit well, bosses and, and everybody also, watching. Also, you know, they they obviously hack the 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 digital security, the computers and whatnot. But they're still, like you said, pit bosses and people who are keeping an eye on things. And even if they didn't notice the click, wouldn't they think it was strange if numbers kept coming up sh- snake eyes over and over again? Yeah. And you and might start to get curious. Yeah, and because correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure casinos can just throw you out. I I don't think they have to prove you were cheating. I think even if they suspect you right. were cheating, they can but, throw you out. But this recall has to happen in like a three minute span. Yeah, and so they might not catch on and have you thrown out. Maybe before the uh, earthquakes hit and send everybody <laughs> yeah. running. <laughs> yeah, the earthquakes. But, you know, in, in talking about Mexico, that brings me to another point. I thought some of the humor was, like, ridiculously goofy. The whole subplot with Casey Affleck's yeah. character in Mexico is just stupid. Yeah, I agree. And Ellen, And another comedic thing that I thought didn't work at all was Ellen Barkin's character when her seduction by Matt Damon just was way over the top as, like, something goofy from a TV show. Well, it's kind of a shame because, you know, I kind of grew interested in her character. Yeah. Throughout the movie, I kept thinking, you know, how are they going to deal with her? She's on top of everything. Well, yeah, it's just kind of a simple seduction thing that's like, oh. Well, and and she's way over the top in it. Right. I mean, and once again, they use ridiculous technological gadgets and stuff. It's almost like the the James Bonds now, whereas in Ocean's Eleven, yeah, they had a lot of high-tech gadgetry and stuff, but none of it was so... It, it was stuff you think that you could probably it buy on eBay if the you wanted to, or Radio <laughs> Shack. You know, whereas this stuff, you'd have to have connections in the Department of Intelligence or the Interior or something. Well, Doug, I have a feeling you're going to give Ocean's Thirteen higher than me, but yes, I am. what are you going to give it? I liked it. I think it's worth seeing. It's certainly not as bad as 12. I'm giving it a three and a half. Well, I don't think we're as far apart as what I initially thought. I'm going to give it a two and a half. It's just below recommending. I, I You know, it's entertaining in parts, but honestly, it's just so ridiculous it's and convoluted. not without it its problems, but yeah. you'll have a good time just... Pray for no screaming yeah. babies. So basically, Doug's giving it a wishy-washy thumbs up. I'm giving it a wishy-washy <laughs> thumbs down. And we both give thumbs down to the screaming baby. Okay, well, next up on the show, we have the review of 10 items or less. Last week on the show, Doug admitted that the movie he was most looking forward to seeing was Brad Silberling's Ten Items or Less. Well, I enthusiastically let him borrow it, and now having seen it, I'm sure he'll agree with me on at least a few points. First of all, the film defies conventional classification. It's not really a romance or a realistic slice of life, nor can it be grouped into even large genres such as comedy or drama. The movie simply follows Morgan Freeman, who plays an actor who hasn't worked in years and is finally thinking about working again. So, essentially, Morgan Freeman is playing Morgan Freeman. Along the way, he is abandoned by his driver and ends up befriending the checkout girl at a small supermarket played by the mesmerizing Paz Vega. So, Doug, after saying how difficult it is for me to classify the film, 
How would you classify it? And more importantly, did you enjoy it? Well, I don't know how you classify this movie either. Maybe maybe it's a comedy. Maybe it's a, a movie about friendship and self-confidence. But whatever it truly is, it works. It's great. I love right. it. <laughs> That's I good. Really you had me worried it. there for a little while. <laughs> I thought the performances by Morgan Freeman and Paz Vega were yeah. outstanding and Oscar-worthy. I thought they had great chemistry. Like you said, it's not necessarily a romance. There's mm -hmm. times you might think they're going in for a kiss or yeah. that it could turn that way, but it never does. It's almost, it's a platonic love story, really. I mean, because you, you can see a love story. What he kept reminding me of, in a very bizarre sort of way, was the relationship between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker in the Star Wars movies, with Morgan Freeman being Obi-Wan. I mean, it's just, I, you're looking at me like Very I'm insane. Very puzzled. Go ahead and explain. <laughs> but because he almost acts as a mentor or guide for Paz Vega's character. Oh, right. Okay, now, he certainly. he certainly learns stuff from her as mm -hmm. well. But, and the reason I use the Obi-Wan Kenobi metaphor is, and this is one slight flaw I did have with the film, I felt that Morgan Freeman's character was almost too nice. He was almost too generous and kind and patient and benevolent. Whereas, um, I don't know, maybe he's like that in real life. He, he could be. But, uh, so that's why I made that comparison. Well, whether this is supposed to be an accurate portrayal of him or not probably doesn't matter. Oh, I, no. I think it works for his character. I wouldn't want it to have been different. <laughs> I thought, I, I totally saw him as that mentor, and I think, you know... Of the word to classify him, he is an observer. Mm -hmm. You know, he he's lived life. He's had many many experiences he can draw upon, and he is continually a student of life, even at this, even at his age. Yeah. Um, there's one person that I definitely think needs to watch this film and learn from it. Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> oh, this <God. laughs> is how a film that is very wordy works. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to disagree you with you that it well doesn't better work. not. But I, I'm going to disagree with the point that Quentin Tarantino <laughs> doesn't know how to do this Because already. this is a film that is 90% dialogue, but it works because the dialogue means something. It, ha it has meaning to the viewer. Mm -hmm. Okay, the viewer can watch it and draw conclusions. They can draw out the themes. Yeah. They can learn something from this movie. To Quentin me, Tarantino has none of that. To me, that is like arguing that you hate Picasso because he doesn't paint like Van Gogh. It it, it doesn't make any sense. It's two totally different styles. I disagree. And and it's not that both can't be valid. I think yeah, I I disagree with that a hundred percent because I don't understand why you would use this format just you know, character dialogue, if in one movie you're going to make it about just pointless bullshit that, you know, if I were to walk up to a group of people having that conversation in Quentin Tarantino's movie, I'm going to say, I don't know what they're talking about, I'm going to walk away. But and that's what I wanted to do with the film. Okay. But this movie... Allow me to retort, and then we're done with Tarantino, okay? Uh, maybe, it depends <laughs> on what you're going to say here. But 
the the point is that it seems mundane, but it's not. Because when you look at it from a thematic standpoint of what his theme is for the story, it has relevance. It to doesn't. It. What is his theme for that well, story? Like I said, we'll talk about this after the podcast, but go on to the point See, you're making. Uh, you just said my point. There are themes here. Yeah. Okay? I'm not going to say that I don't get the friendship out of the characters in a movie like that. No! No! We're done with that. <laughs> we're on ten items I can't left. let this drop. Okay? Well, you have to. Alright, fine. Well, I think the themes of friendship, you know, Paz Vega's character kind of trying to find her way, and even Morgan Freeman's, you know, developing the self-confidence, developing friendship, I think it's very, very strong here. Mm -hmm. I think the dialogue sounds very natural, yet it's very intelligent. The viewers can pull something from it. I think the pacing and the editing of the movie are fantastic. You know, the running time here we have listed is an hour 22 minutes. I didn't even think it was that long. To be no, I, I, I totally agree with you on the pacing. I thought it had terrific pacing, which is something you rarely see in films nowadays, unfortunately. Right. They, especially in the era of director's cuts where we're living in, where everyone feels that they just have to cram every single and scene make they the shot. the next big epic. Yeah, and you're right. It was... Definitely a clinic in film economy. I mean, there's nothing there that doesn't need to be. Right. I mean, I think some of the best discussion in the film is, is you know, what the title was about when they discussed ten items or less. You know, yeah. What would you most like to keep in this world? Yeah. It certainly has you thinking. I certainly thought about it as yeah. they're discussing it. It's just great. I mean... I mean, that, that brings me to another slight criticism I did have as well. And that is that I think at times, and this is a flaw in almost every independent film, not just this one, it sometimes becomes a little too obvious and it lacks subtlety. Because it, it almost seemed to at times be clubbing you over the head of the fact of, oh, this is like acting as a metaphor for life. And, you know, he, researching the part as a metaphor for a job interview. And, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, it, I'm not that, and I'm nitpicking. I'm I not... I was say, whether I agree with you or not, I don't think it hurts the film. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not killing the film because of it. Because obviously I enjoyed it, because I recommended it. But, um, it is a flaw, and that's something that I think a lot of independent films have, where it, they, it's almost clumsy with how they handle the theme. But, um... Uh, I wouldn't call this one clumsy. I was gonna say that seems that's like a poor a harsh choice. Word. It's a poor choice of words in this circumstance, but but yeah. So I I would say that one thing I loved is I, even though you couldn't really classify it as an out and out comedy, there are a lot of moments. Yeah, I mean I loved when Morgan Freeman follows the old man Lee, around the yes, store. That, that was hilarious. That, that is hilarious. And that's probably the funniest moment in the film. Mm -hmm. A lot of the supermarket scenes are pretty good, yeah. including the other checkout girl oh, yeah. sleeping with the manager. She's pretty funny. Yeah. So, and, and that, that was another scene, too, that was a little too obvious. Paz Vega's confrontation with her, her husband. It was, a little too... I could agree that it might have been the weakest scene in the film. Yeah. But I thought it was at least appropriate in 
keeping up with the pacing of the story. They didn't dwell on it yeah. forever. You know, she kind of beats the shit out of him for his keys and right. they fight, and then it's, okay, let's move on to bigger and better things. Right, and uh, like I said, this is a case of me just looking for faults because I'm trying You're to weird. be a critic. <laughs> Either way. So, Doug, I think you might be giving 10 items or less even higher score than I am. What are you giving? I'm giving it a perfect 5 out of 5. Wow. I loved it. Wow, that's great. I'm giving it a four. I think it was a fantastic film, just not quite in that league. But definitely, you have to check it out, because you will love it. Yes, Quentin Tarantino, you do have to check it out. (sighs) Okay, well now it's time for our list segment of the show, and we're going to do things a little differently this week. As some of you may be aware, Wednesday... AFI will be airing its 10th anniversary of AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies, where they'll actually be recompiling the list of 100 best American-made films of the past 100 years. Right, suppose it'd be 110 years now. And uh, we thought, in honor of that, since we did have some disagreement with the previous list, we would compile a top 10 list instead of our usual five, of the American films that we felt were the most important to the culture, or we just enjoy the most, or what have you. And uh, we thought then we could later compare our list to the actual top ten list and bitch about why they got it wrong. So I'm going to, without further ado, Doug, let you get started. Remember, these had to be American-made films, so don't write to us and ask us why... For example, something like Pan's Labyrinth, which we both adored, isn't on the list. What are you talking about? It's my number one. (laughs) Alright, well, my number ten choice is a trilogy. The Indiana Jones series. Mm. I, of course, like the first and the third probably Mm. better than the second one, but... I'm putting the whole trilogy on, and I'm making it only take one space instead of three. <laughs> All right. I thought, yeah, I, I cheated like that a few times, too. <laughs> I thought that these were, you know, kind of a great homage to the cheesy B action films. Right. And, you know, they were all excellent. Great performances, great uh, actors, great cinematography, of course, good directing. And this was before George Lucas went insane and helped. Steven Spielberg with editing. Funny how he can't get it right now. <laughs> well, and the great thing is that now they get a chance to fuck up Indiana Jones like they did Star Wars. Wow. So. <laughs> I am worried about that, so I'll give it its place in history on my <laughs> list here at number 10. All right. Well, uh, a little preamble to my list is I had so much trouble compiling this, so ultimately I just tried to think of the films made in America over the years that kind of were the best examples of their genre. And that was basically my criteria. I don't know if that's a good criteria or not, but that's how I decided on these. So my number 10 is 1989's Roger and Me. The document, Michael Mora's first feature-length documentary about the closing of the General Motors plant in Flint, Michigan. And still his best. I haven't seen Sicko yet. I'm looking forward to it. When does that release? Uh, The end of this month. I knew it was soon. And I'm really looking forward to it. But to me, he's never been better than he was in Roger and Me. And I think 
to a large degree, he changed the documentary format. He, he merged it with a sort of social and political activism where he, he kind of shamed people into doing things that they normally wouldn't do. And a lot of times for the better. He's often critiqued for being a little loose with the truth and exaggerating <laughs> facts. But, you know, his movies aren't intended to be straight documentaries. They're really op-ed pieces, like something you'd read on the opinion page of your local newspaper. And I think taken as such, they're hilarious and really heartbreaking, usually. Not a bad choice. I haven't seen that movie. I have seen some of his other ones, but not that one in particular. My number nine choice is a movie that I feel will be remembered forever. And I certainly loved it when I saw it as a kid. It's E.T., the extraterrestrial. Uh, the, I think any movie that can kind of define itself in history <clears throat> and remain timeless is truly something special. You know, it, at the time, even, even at that time, the special effects for E.T. were nothing stellar. Yeah. You know, if anything, they probably spent more on the budget removing the guns and replacing them with walkie-talkies. Yeah, Yoda looked better than E.T., right. and those were, I, I don't believe the same exact year, but very close, within a year or two of right. each other. Well, regardless, I'm keeping it on my top ten films. I think it certainly deserves a place. I'm I'm going to come out and become a social pariah right now. I hate E.T. Really? And I'm about the only person on Earth yeah, that I, hates E.T. I think you're probably right. But I, I don't know what it is even about it. I just find it irritating. And I know it's... I watch it, and the film critic in me realizes that the shot composition is terrific. I love how St Spielberg filmed everything from kid level. Mm -hmm. and, and everything's great. It's just for some reason... I'm irritated by it. I don't know if it's the performances of the kids or what it is, but Poor I just... Drew Barrymore. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but I'm just... I don't know. I have no idea, but yes. that That is... Let the hate mail fly for that. <laughs> well, my number nine is the 1933 version of King Kong. The very first King Kong movie, and I think you have to give it credit for almost being the creator of the monster movie. I, granted, there were silent films that can fill this bill beforehand, but nothing that was the major hit that King Kong right. was, and certainly nothing that entered the cultural psyche like King Kong right. did. And King Kong is another one of those kind of timeless yeah. classics that will be remembered forever. With, without King Kong, you're not going to have Godzilla, you're not going to have This Year's The Host... I mean, there's a slew of movies that just would not exist without King Kong. Some for the better, perhaps, <laughs> but definitely a worthy addition to the canon. Well, my number eight choice, I switched over to a comedy. And it's a movie I can watch over and over again, and I'll always laugh. It's Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. <laughs> that so almost Steve made Martin my list. and John Candy. I can't remember even the first time I saw this movie, but I remember watching it with my family, and I'll never forget, because we, in fact, I don't think I saw it in the theaters, I think it was rented, and we saw it on home video, but we were all in tears laughing, yeah. I mean, there's so many great scenes that just stick in your mind, 
and I've seen it so many times I can probably almost recite the whole script, but I think people who've only seen it once will never forget the the motel room scenes oh, yeah. and the uh, rent-a-car scene. The F-bomb. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Which is why it's heartbreaking when the movie comes on Comedy Central and they have yeah. to pretty much butcher that whole thing out. But I love this movie, and I'm giving it number eight. That's a great choice, and I almost it, it almost makes me ashamed I didn't put it on because I, without question, think that it's the best American comedy ever made. And um, a lot of people may raise eyebrows at that, but a lot of times I think it's just because they haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. And I look at my list and realize I've omitted comedy at all altogether, and I kind of feel bad for that because I'm always bitching about how comedy gets <laughs> short shrifted, and here I've done it. But I'm glad at least you didn't give it the shaft. <laughs> so even though you're wrong so many times, oh, you're right at least one. Well, my number eight pick is 1970s Patton, starring George C. Scott. You know, the thing with Patton is, without George C. Scott, I'm not sure if it's even a good movie, but the movie is one of the greatest movies in American history just because it stars him, and George C. Scott gives probably one of the best performances an actor has ever given in any role. And it's just amazing to watch. You, be- He is George S. Patton. I mean, there's not a moment in your mind that you don't believe he's Patton. And it's just mesmerizing to watch. I think that's a good choice. I'd say if there's probably one I might have omitted, it would have been the war movie. Yeah. But my number seven choice might be a groaner. But I have to put it on. I've had it on damn near every other list we've done. It's Sin City. Okay. All right. It wasn't. It wasn't a that. huge box office success. I realize. Well, and that's not necessary. But I put it on because I love film for its visual element. You know, more so than just pure entertainment. And I think Sin City really tried to reinvent the the way things are done. It, it's the, what movies using CG graphics and animation all that stuff that's the the direction they should be going you know create a solid movie in this case you know a great film noir it's a lot of fun to watch Mm. and use the computer to enhance it give it some style some extra punch you know these movies like the current star wars that make whole characters out of computer animation and seem more like that's all they cared about yeah that's just not the way we should be going that's going to destroy the art form i think but I give kudos to Sin City for what it attempted and what it accomplished. And I think, I hope it lives on forever, although yeah. probably people have already forgotten it. <laughs> yeah, I, I won't groan at that. I, I won't know if I'd put it in the top ten, but it's definitely a lot of fun, and I do love it. The style is fantastic. All right, my number seven. seven. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> My number seven choice is 1972's The Godfather. You know, the, the thing about The Godfather, I feel, that makes it one of the most important or iconic American films is the fact that it's about the immigrant experience and what is America if not a nation of immigrants. And granted, it's a very violent immigrant family, but you definitely get the sense 
particularly in the second Godfather, of how this family started up from, you know, a, a man who just came for a better life to escape his home and ended up building for himself something, an empire out of the American dream. You know, uh, stealing a line from Roger Ebert when he was talking about the Godfather series, he said, you know, whenever you watch it, it's almost like you're going to a family reunion and you recognize everyone. And whenever you see the new the new movies, you say, oh, yeah, that person's son is a lot like them. I can see that. And I see where he's coming from. It almost does become an extended family for a lot of the viewers. Well, that's a pretty good <laughs> choice. My number six choice kind of resembles Sin City a little bit in the fact that they tried something new visually. I gave it to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. This is another movie that I fell in love with when I saw it as a kid. I fell in love with the characters, of course. But it was one of the movies that mixed, you know, one of the first to mix animation with live action and do it successfully. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny how well it works but yet, the when they have the technology for the later movie like Space Jam, yeah, it, it looks awful. There's a lot of scenes in Space Jam that I think look terrible. Could be because Michael Jordan's no actor, but yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if Space Jam's problem was that so much as the fact that the story was god awful and it had Wayne Knight. Poor but... <laughs> <laughs> Wayne Knight. I thought that it could have worked, you know, maybe with. A more believable actor because I, I, Michael Jordan's interaction with the cartoons and Space Jam was just awful yeah, yeah and we won't talk about Space Jam we're gonna talk about who framed Roger Rabbit I thought it was much better it did riskier things it was a, a clever story a great film noir I mean yeah yeah it, it just aside from the fact that it has animation to it it was a cool story I'm giving it number six film that, that's not a bad choice at all. Uh, my number six, I'm going to go very obscure here, but it's definitely worth checking out. 1927's Sunrise. Never even it's, heard of it. <laughs> most people have not. But it's probably one of the greatest American films. Certainly the greatest American silent film. It, it was directed by F.W. Murnau, who directed Nosferatu. And um, he was an icon of the German Expressionist era in, in silent filmmaking. And, um, but this was part of his Hollywood phase. And so that's how it fits in with American filmmaking. I was going to say, I was yes. about to yeah, give you the buzzer yeah, on that one. I know. But definitely, if you love visual filmmaking, which I know you do, it's something you have to check out because it has gorgeous cinematography that the... the designs of the sets, it's slightly German expressionist in the sense that everything has a sort of skewed reality to it. Angled, almost yeah, like yeah. Doctor, or it's Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Similar to that, only not as extreme, because this isn't a horror film. But um, it's just, it's amazing film, it really works on your emotions, and it's certainly the greatest silent film ever. So if you're at all into silent film, you have to watch it. Well, I might have to put that on my one-to-see list. My number five choice is going to probably my favorite Martin Scorsese film. I could debate that with the more recent Departed, but it's going to Raging Bull. Mm. I love this movie. I think it's a great story. 
about Jake LaMotta, and I think it's it features some of the best sports action cinematography, certainly the best boxing scenes. I mean, Rocky, of course, is a good movie, the first one, mm-hmm. and some of the others, but I think Raging Bull got it down. I love Joe Pesci's character in it. I think it's great. I think uh, Robert De Niro is great in this, and I, I love the fight scene where Jake LaMotta goes up against Sugar Ray. Yeah. You know, just the, that backlighting on him makes him look, makes Sugar Ray look so vicious, like a wild animal almost. Yeah. It's great. I love it. That 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 is a very good movie. I didn't have it on the list. No Scorsese. Uh-huh. Poor guy. He never gets any love. <laughs> no, he Until this year. <laughs> well, my number five, you knew it was coming sooner or later, 1977 Star Wars. And really, you could clump them all together if you wanted to in this slide as well. Other than the prequels. The, the original trilogy, I should say. Uh, you know, it, I really don't need to talk much about this. Obviously, it changed sci-fi forever. Before Star Wars, sci-fi was always very sterile and... Everything looked clean and new, and Lucas is famous for saying he wanted a used universe. And that, and since that time, that's what sci-fi has been. And without Star Wars, we don't have movies like Serenity. You know, <laughs> we don't have we don't have also <laughs> the bad versions of those movies too. <laughs> but that things like Wing Commander, we probably oh, don't have without Star Wars. We would have been better off. Yeah, we would be. But but definitely. He changed things forever, and he also created the whole concept of the blockbuster, which, granted, is another mixed bag type of blessing. Yeah, but commercialism's never a good thing. But. Right, but still, it, you have to give it credit for changing cinema, and obviously in the case of the prequel, the original trilogy at least, it was a fantastic group of films as well. Well, my number four choice, I won't go into extreme detail because it topped my list of uh, one of our more recent podcasts, it's Singing in the Rain. Mm. Again, it's another movie you just can't walk away from without smiling. It's got great music, Gene Kelly at his best. You've got a lot of wonderful things happening in this, and I think everybody needs to see it. Not to mention it's fun use on... Or fun play at how movies just were coming into the age of sound, which I probably should have put the first movie that used sound on here, but I didn't. Yeah, that that's a great choice. It it just barely missed my list. As I said, I screwed comedy. Yeah, so <laughs> that that was part of my uh, goal. Uh, my number four choice is 1946's Notorious, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. You know, Hitchcock is a director that, he's the one director I had a problem when making this list, because I Probably think... could have put five of his on. I, I think, honestly, you could make an entire top ten list and only have Hitchcock filmed. It, he was that good of a director, and also that much, he, he worked that much. I mean, he literally has something like 80 or 100 films to his credit. It's just ridiculous. And so many of them are great. But in the case of Notorious, you know, one of the genres I enjoy is film noir. And this was kind of Hitchcock's turn at film noir. Now, it's a lot different than your conventional noir story. But it's still really that dark sort of atmosphere of people that have 
dark past that they can't get away from, and there's a sort of element of fate controlling their destinies. But it, it really has a great style. Hitchcock, if you think he's a good cinematographer in color, you should see him in black and white. It's just amazing. So if you haven't seen it and you like Hitchcock at all, you have to check it out. Well, I do like Alfred Hitchcock, and I certainly won't disagree. That's a fine choice. And I also won't dwell on my number three choice, because you've already mentioned it. It is the Star Wars yeah. trilogy. It's great for all the reasons you've mentioned. All right. Well, my number three choice is 1942's Casablanca. You know, with, <laughs> without... I didn't put that on, and that is a good one. Without question, I think you could say it's the most beloved film in American history. Uh, quite possibly in world history. It's amazing how lines of that movie are still repeated, and it, repeated by people who have never seen the film. Yeah. Sometimes repeated incorrectly. But, <laughs> in the famous case of Play It Against right. Sam. But, it, it's really, it's a case of a movie that is flawed. I mean, there are flaws in the film. It's not a perfect piece of cinema, but for some reason, you get so involved emotionally with the characters in that film that you just can't let go. And I think an important contribution the film adds to the to American cinema is the character of Rick played by Humphrey Bogart because in Rick you have the future Han Solos you know the guy who's the greedy bastard but who deep down is just an idealist who's become a cynic because he's sick and tired of getting shit on all the time <laughs> so he's just become hardened but at the end of the day he still has the heart of an idealist you know and that kind of Good-hearted rogue is repeated again and again in Western sci-fi action. I mean, you just keep... It keeps coming up. And really, he was kind of the the archetype for that character. Well, that's a good choice. And I feel bad for not putting it on my list. I do love that film. My number two choice is my Alfred Hitchcock pick. It is the movie Rear Window. Mm -hmm. I love this movie, even though I might not be the biggest Jimmy Stewart fan. <laughs> I thought, Yeah, but I love Jimmy Stewart and Hitchcock. I right, mean, I do too, and I love them in this probably more than any of the other yeah. films. I think it's just great how pretty much 99%, if not maybe the whole entire thing, takes place yeah. at the windowsill of Jimmy Stewart's apartment. And it's great how the use of... The, the wall of the other side of the building kind of creates a suspense because we can only see what he sees. You know, you know all these things are going down in the other apartments, yet we don't know. We can only see what we can yeah. see through the windows. It just, it's such a simple concept that has such great, great effect. And I think the movie, aside from the fact that it's active, you know, has great performances and stuff, I, I think it, it's... It's what more movies should try to do. Yeah. You know, using using its setup, using its scenery to, to help tell its story. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, so much that my number two choice is also <laughs> Rear Window from 1954. Um, there's not much I can add to it. I, I love the examination of the voyeur culture in America because, I mean, 
it's probably even more true today. Oh, with things we're like webcams and reality out our TV. windows. We're all, always more interested in what what's going on outside right. than what's and going. The on. biggest example of that is freaking reality TV. We care more about the lives of others than our own life. Yeah. Well, I would say the biggest of Example of that is, for Christ's sake, he has Grace Kelly living in his apartment. And, yeah, and he he's wants more to interested see in what's across the guy the alley. who might be a murderer across the alley. I'm pretty sure if I were in his shoes, I, or in his cast, as it were, <laughs> oh, I, I wouldn't be... I that, that murder would go unsolved, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. But, yeah, you were right. Great choice. All right, and I have a feeling our number one choice is probably going to be the same, too. And, in fact, this might it's have almost been a law. <laughs> AFI's choice, I, I believe. It was ten years ago, okay. if you're doing what I'm yeah, thinking. Yeah, well, it's the movie that pretty much got every possible thing right. I mean, yeah. to its great use of deep focus and new cinematography, to its fine acting, to even you know playing with time and character study, Citizen Kane. Yeah. I mean... Go ahead and elaborate. I assume yeah. it's your number one. Yeah, my number well. one, 1941 Citizen Kane, uh, directed by Orson Welles. Uh, even though he doesn't agree, it's without question his best film. And I really, a lot of the points you made, deep focus, uh, groundbreaking cinematography in that regard. The acting is great. The, also, the story structure is something right. that is really revolutionary in that it gets bits and pieces from everyone. And... and the amazing, what makes that perfect is it's a case of a film that understands what its story is and the best way to tell that story. You know, a lot of times techniques like this would be used in a gimmicky way. But when you're talking about Citizen Kane, which is a story about how you can understand a man's life, one of the many themes, and the fact that you're getting it in pieces from different spectators of his life it, it's just perfect because basically that's all you can understand people as, is as fragments. Right. You can never understand the whole because different people are different in different situations. And it's just brilliant. And, and people often ask, you know, why is it always the best, picked as the best film of all time? And really, you if you ask the question, you can't have ever seen. It's just truly, it mesmerizes you from beginning to end. Well, I certainly agree with that, and that will be our top ten. Yeah, those are our lists. I hope that... We, we just have to find out now how they compare to AFI's top yeah, ten. Yeah, the, the dickheads See at what AFI. bitching rights we have. Yes. <laughs> uh, I have a feeling Citizen, our number ones well, will be similar. I, think so too but um yeah and also we'd love to hear top 10 lists from you uh that'd be terrific we could get some feedback see if you hate our lists or if you agree or disagree or whatever with anything we've talked about on the show today uh we will in the future we plan on unveiling a contest where we'll be giving away most likely a free dvd of your choice from amazon.com uh under 25 dollars but, uh, and we also have to say that we will only be able to ship it in the U.S. or Canada. So keep an ear out for that in our future podcasts. Uh, also, releasing this Tuesday on DVD, we have Bridge to Terabithia and Miss Potter, our two releases of note. 
Uh, neither one of us saw either one of the... <laughs> Probably will. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually have Bridge to Terabithia oh, okay. in my Netflix queue, because I am interested in it. Miss right. Potter, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> and then releasing this Friday in theaters, we have Evan o Almighty, which is the sequel to Bruce Almighty, which we Great both film. enjoyed. And I loved Bruce Almighty. We, we enjoyed Steve Carell as well, although I'm a little leery of Evan Almighty. It looks like it might be a little shtick. Yeah, I don't know that I'll enjoy it as much as 40-Year-Old Virgin, but I loved Bruce Almighty, so we'll see. Uh, I'm, I'm hopeful. Then we have 1408, the horror story with Samuel Jackson and John Cusack, oh, of all people. If, if you could like pick the least likely actors to put together in a film, you might come up with John Cusack and Samuel Jackson. Uh, and then we have A Mighty Heart releasing, which is the true story about journalist David Pearl, who was beheaded. It stars Angelina Jolie. Uh, it's about... It mainly focuses on his wife, I believe, who's played by Angelina. Um, and that might be pretty good. And then releasing in limited release, we have Black Sheep, which looks like a hilarious <laughs> horror comedy about killer sheep from New Zealand. The best way I can describe it is it's like the birds, just with sheep. <laughs> so, uh, which of those would you probably most like to see? I'd probably say black sheep. I would, too. But I am hopeful for Evan Almighty. And yeah. always use a good laugh. I, I would uh, like to see black sheep, too. Uh, since it's limited, we probably won't get it. Uh, I, I think A Mighty Heart might be good. A lot of people Did say that it, like Angelina it. Jolie's performance may get an Oscar nomination in it. So that would be impressive to see. Okay, that's all for today's show. If you would like to review any of the ratings that we gave the movies that we covered today, please visit thosemovieguys.blogspot.com. There you can find more in-depth reviews, our star ratings, as well as links to items that we may have covered in the show. Plus, you can subscribe to our feed. Also, you can visit Google Groups at groups.google.com. When you're there, search for Those Movie Guys. You can post a message to our forums. And you can also email us at thosemovieguys@gmail.com. Those movie guys at gmail.com. We look forward to any feedback that you can give us about why we're retarded. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. <laughs>